Welcome to The Scrap Show, a production of Recycling Today. Covering the business of scrap metal recycling, we feature conversations about markets, technology, the industry's rich history, and the traditions and ways of doing business that stay reliably familiar. Listen in as guests from across the country and around the world, processors, traders, and industry allies provide insights and observations. The Scrap Show, a conversation between friends in an industry with a rich history and a bright future. My name is Brian Taylor, Senior Editor with the Recycling Today Media Group, and welcome to The Scrap Show. As the name states, we're here to talk about scrap recycling. In each episode, we'll visit with more, one or more people and hear about their scrap journeys and get their views on how this industry is evolving in the 2020s. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Michael Friedman of Sustainable Management Corporation, which is based in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael has been in the scrap business since 1976. It's our nation's bicentennial, for those of us old enough to remember that uh, celebration. He has played several different roles in his career, and I'm going to let him talk more about that. For now, let me just say welcome, Michael Friedman. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. You're a, you're a longtime friend of Recycling Today magazine, and we're, we're happy to welcome you to the show. Um, I'll start and kind of begin at the beginning, if we could, Michael. When and how did you get your start in the scrap business? Are you, are you part of a family with a scrap background, or did you kind of find this industry on your own? Well, kind of, yes. Um, it all reverts back to, of course, my mother. Hmm. Uh, my mother and stepfather were having dinner with uh, Martin and Esther Sanger, and Martin owned Colonial Metals. And uh, Martin was complaining to my, my stepfather, Sam Abrams, who owned uh, B. Abrams and Sons in Harrisburg, said, <clears throat> it's difficult finding a scrap metal buyer. Do you hire someone with experience, but they bring all their baggage with them? Or do you train someone new that, um, uh, you know, you can teach them the your ways. So, of course, my mother, you know, pipes up and says, oh, Michael just returned from college. <laughs> he goes, great. <laughs> Have him call David Searles. Now, David Searles, uh, mm -hmm. um, who at that time was, I think he was vice president of Colonial Metals. Okay, um, we're talking he, Eastern and Central Pennsylvania, Colonial Metals yes, and Abrams. Yes, Columbia, Pennsylvania, just south okay. of uh, Harrisburg, uh, west of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, so he said, oh, give David Searles a call. David Searles uh, was, of course, my Sunday school principal, you know, when I was very little. And okay. I called Monday morning, I called David Searles. Uh, he referred me to Mike Mann, and, uh, who was manager of the, uh, the scrap metal buying, um, who later uh, went, came, uh, I, think he, I think he ended up as president of Colonial as well. Um, and uh, so I made an appointment to see Mike Mann um, and uh, um, you know, I was all excited. Then I told my father, I said, oh, guess what? I got an appointment to talk to Mike Mann. They're looking to hire a scrap metal buyer. And my father's firm did their accounting. And so my uh -huh. father was there every Wednesday, um, you know, doing their books. And my father said, uh, he said, they'll never hire you. They're just being nice. And I'm thinking, what? Yeah. Because of me, they're nice, but they're never going to hire you because the scrap metal business is full of secrets. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're not going to teach you the secrets just so you can go to your stepfather and teach him the secrets. I'm thinking, oh, sounds right to me. So I went through with the interview. Mike Mann and I just really happened to hit it off. And I knew this, 
this, I was probably just there for going through semantics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, he also told me that they're not sure to hire someone with experience or hire someone brand new. So I said to him, uh, well, now balls in your court. Um, you got to make a decision. You know, you hire someone with experience or someone like me completely with no experience. And uh, so I think two days came by and he calls me up and he said, uh, well, balls in your court. We'd like to hire you. And um, I was jumping out of my skin at this point. And uh, I didn't want to sound too anxious. I said, do you mind if I get back to you? <laughs> and, uh, so he said, please, by all means, think it out. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I called him back the next day and, uh, you know, we worked out a deal and I came over. And uh, so that was how I got started in the scrap business. All right. And again, that was 1976, is that right? 1976, right. It was in the fall of 1976. Okay. How long did you stay with Colonial and what all did you do there over the years? Um, my, I was hired as a scrap metal buyer and my territory was primarily the Northeast, except for New York City and uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, and so I worked in, in the plant, you know, I, uh, where they taught me how to, to look at scrap and, and basically tell you the chemistry by doing simple tricks, you know, like hitting it with a file, drilling into it, look at the turnings, okay. using a magnet. So you could differentiate between um, a, a tin bronze, aluminum bronze, manganese bronze, high tensile manganese bronze. And the, the secrets your father things. told you about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they taught me the secrets. Um, and I was with them, um, let me see, uh, I think for about six years. Now, they also transferred me to um, uh, Chicago where I sold brass and bronze ingots. So I got the full education of the, of the scrap industry from oh, scrap. Okay. Buy side and factory. sell side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, uh, as far as scrap, I, I had a, a, a tremendous people that I was calling on. And um, ironically, it was mostly Jews and Italians. And, okay. the, and all the, 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 the Jewish people wanted to set me up with their daughters or granddaughters or nieces. And uh, uh, so I had, I had a tremendous experience. And uh, back then, um, I think this was pre-recycling today. When did you start? The publication had different names. I think it switched to recycling today in the early nineties. Before that, it was okay. scrap. Oh gosh, I better not get this wrong. It had other names. I'll simply say that and other owners. Okay. Well, there was a it started, um, but the magazine itself, the predecessor started in 1963. I know that because that's, that's the year of my birth also. Ah, ironically, but, coincidentally. The, um, one of the things that uh, um, I, I got to go to a lot of dinners and this was uh, ISIS and Nari. So I went to, you know, I spent almost my whole uh, years going to okay. these dinners. Yeah, back they when there was they, ISIS they on the steel side and Nari on the non-fair side. Right. right. They took photos of every table. So okay. I was in the magazine and Mike Mann jokingly said, let me check, make sure you're here. I want to see that you're actually here. And, uh, <laughs> I think uh, Mush Oberman was the one going around taking uh, photos. One of the people. Okay. Uh, the pioneers in the uh, the print industry and uh, for scrap, right? Um, so uh, uh, that's uh, you know I I started there and um, I think it was eleven or fourteen days before I got married. Okay, I got fired. Uh. I got fired. Now 
because I had my father as the inside person at Colonial, he told me, hey, oh, geez. you know, this one fella who I don't want to name, he's coming after you because you're doing too well. And he's afraid that he's going to lose his job. And, you know, I'm in my 20s. You know, what, what do I know? And um, so at that point, I started, you know, of course, I called my mother and I started looking for another job. So my stepfather called me and he said, before you look anywhere else, can you look at us? Because we need a non-Ferris person. Uh -huh. So I flew to Harrisburg from Chicago um, and uh, interviewed uh, with um, uh, Sam Abrams and his son. Uh, and um, so worked out an arrangement and they hired me. So meanwhile, I'm dealing with, I'm waiting for the call from David Searles and uh, to fire me. And uh, so he said, well, Michael, we're, we're not happy with your performance. I said, David, you just paid me the highest commission of any salesman for the, the, uh, um, the newest accounts, you know, gotten. And he paused and he goes, that's beside the point. And I knew it was beside the point. So anyway, uh, we, you know, worked out a separation, you know, um, and, uh, and I started with, with Abrams and, uh, um, I was there, I think maybe a year and a half. And it just, it just didn't turn out the way I thought it was supposed to, to be. So I, mm -hmm. I started a, um, a company um, in 1984 called uh, uh, Friedman Metals. Okay. And uh, it was to be a temporary kind of a, a thing. And um, uh, I, uh, I finally sold that in 2000 to, uh, to ISA. In uh, okay. Louisville, sure, and that brought me to uh, to Louisville, right? And um, so, anyway, that's uh, you know that was uh, with ISA, and then uh, I left there, and ironically, I got fired from there. Oh, and no. <laughs> uh, and it, it's funny because David Searles, many many years later, you know, called me in. He says, you know, I I apologize. I fired the wrong person, ah. meaning you fired the guy. Mm -hmm. And then years after that, Harry Kletter said this almost exactly <laughs> the same thing. I'm so sorry, I, we got rid of the wrong guy. They were setting you up. So I was about to get to Harry of, of ISA, and I think it's safe to say I'm not going out on a limb to say he was one of the real characters of the of the scrap industry. How did he How did he find you, or how did you find him? Oh, this was um, the. Uh, uh, I, I don't know how it happened, but somehow I made a connection with a Chinese company. I'm guessing they must have called me. They probably read an article in Recycling Today magazine and maybe. saw that, <laughs> that, that I knew maybe something. And uh, a fellow named C.C. Lam, L-A-M, uh, called me and he said uh, that they're looking to import scrap from the uh, United States into China, the, the, the scrap business is coming into its own and they're looking for iron, they're looking for copper. And uh, um, so they wanted to, to talk with me. And at the same time, they were organizing a scrap uh, um, exhibition in Shanghai uh -huh. called uh, Scrap, um, I think it was Scrap 94. Mm -hmm. So I took a full page ad out in Recycling Today and it showed the outline of China and had the two flags, American flag and Chinese flag, and said, come to this exhibition and either call uh, um, this one woman or call me. And Harry picks up the phone and calls me. And typical Harry Clutter, he starts in the middle of the conversation 
this is great what you're doing. And, and, and my daughter's in uh, Annapolis and I'll come up and see you. Click. I'm thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> so um, he comes and visits and he literally took over the whole exhibition. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Because he loved going to exhibitions in Europe, big recycling, where they had major recycling exhibitions. Sure. You know, equipment and stuff like that. So um uh, uh, I still had my company and he had his company because that was in 94 and I didn't join him until 2000. Okay. So, okay. Uh, uh, that's how I got together. So we, we, we remained very good friends and we went to a different events and I would come to Louisville, I'd stay at his house. So it was a very close, you know, uh, uh relationship. And, uh, and I, I looked at him as, uh, as a mentor. He, he knew a great deal, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew it, but uh, um, he invented the, uh, the the trash compactor. Okay, I, took, I knew uh, he was a pioneer in that industry, in that sector. A baler and put it on its side to use the ram to push trash into a container. Okay. So um, that was uh, one of his uh, uh, big, I don't know if he invented it, but he claimed he did, and uh, the, the story sounds good. He always had a new, it seemed like he always had a new sector to go into. You know, if he wasn't working on scrap metal, then it was this solid waste sort of uh, trash pickup service, uh, logistics service, or it might be something else. It might be processing light bulbs. There's always something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very few people know about his light bulb processing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's one of those secrets you can, uh, you can spread to the rest of the industry, Michael. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so, um, Anyway, then uh, I got fired from Harry and uh, uh, formed a partnership with a, um, no, I had, before I got fired from Harry, uh, he and I put together a company called Scrap and Waste. Scrap and Waste, yes. And it was kind of like a little satellite company for Harry. And, and uh, he put some money in and we, you know, and I stayed at, at uh, ISA, but I was doing Scrap and Waste more than ISA. I see. Okay. And then finally, we had we had the break, and um, uh, and I went with a fellow named Joy Basu, mm. and uh, Joy was uh, probably the tallest fella from the Indian continent. <laughs> I and, met him. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I did when he, he was with Green just, City. He had a company for a while. Yes, yes, he had a commanding personality, and um, so uh, we bought a building. It was a forty thousand square foot building. And we had, um, uh, and, and uh, we call, that's what we called Green City. Okay. The idea was to bring in um, construction, um, industrial waste, and sort it. Mm-hmm. And then right. I did marketing as well. Um, uh, Scrap and Waste became Scrap and Waste LLC. Okay. He opened a, a portion of that. Um, and then moving forward, uh, you know, when, when he and I split, um, that's when, uh, you know, I, I formed sustainable management. Okay. So, so where you are today. So let's make sure we talk at least enough about that. So people know exactly what sustainable management does. It's, it, it's a trading company primarily. And if so, are there specialty materials you, you focus on? Yes. Um, uh, I don't like competition. So when you start from there, you say, okay, what in the scrap industry don't people like? Well, Electric motors really fit into the program. The mm-hmm. steel people don't like it because you have copper. The copper people don't like it because you have steel. So it, it fit perfectly into what we wanted to do trading. And okay. uh, the, back in, in the, in the uh, mid-90s, 
there weren't too many people that were trading um, electric motors. Um, Steve okay. Cohen in Chicago was one of the also people they were trading. Right. And uh, when we were exporting to China, we did um, vessels. They didn't have something called an overseas container for scrap. People mm. shipped vessels. Okay. So we shipped, the idea was to ship 5,000 tons every month. And uh, so we shipped 20,000 tons on the first vessel, then 5,000 on the next one. And then we went to containers. I see. Uh, okay. So, uh, but, you know, I always tell people I, that I trade in skimmings, grindings, muds, sludges, ashes, sweeps, powders, fines, spent the catalyst and filter cake. Okay. Um, and then I deal with uh, um, copper, tin, nickel, cobalt, tungsten, you know, these kinds of things, molly. Um, and again, in these combinations, in these oddities, mm -hmm. people, they don't, you know, they, they, you know, they don't really understand either they get it or right. they don't. Sure. Note, um, and uh, I would get calls uh, from people. You know, I don't know if you could handle this. That's usually how they start off the conversation. <laughs> All right, and um, uh, it's nice because it's not like trading um, uh, Taint Tabor or uh, Honey or Ebony, because it's both. You know, it is what it is. And if there's a change, and there's always change. There's always problems. There's always something. Everyone gets upset. Well, in what we handle. No one really knows what it is. Okay. So um, uh, we deal with, uh, you know, of course, weights. We have uh, moisture. We have assays. Mm -hmm. And then, you, you know, you kind of have a formula. It's a very usually complex formulas. So I'm dealing in, in Europe and China and Asia and India. Um, uh, and you're buying from, you know, all over the world. So, uh, and you're not just dealing with, with melting. You're also dealing with digesting. Okay. So you have a difference between pyro um, uh, technology and hydro metallurgy. So uh, we deal with uh, chemical companies on uh, zinc oxide, yes. and they digest it down and they make different products with zinc oxide. It doesn't necessarily See? get melted. Okay. You're um, definitely not out there competing for the same UBCs and the same siding as, uh, exactly as so many other right. folks in the same Isri chapter would be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. And uh, there's a funny, a very quick, funny story that mm -hmm. uh, the last day of an Israel convention, and I literally bump into this one fella, and he said, "Oh, my father told me to find you. We have this this dirt in our warehouse. The um, this our buyer said it contains metal, but it just looks like dirt. My father wants to send it to the landfill because the 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 company that made the generated this was sending it to the landfill for twenty some years." And I start the I start off. I said, "Well, I need a chemistry. You know, mm -hmm. send me a sample, and we'll get it assayed." Well, make a long story short, the the very first load of that material was worth over three hundred thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! Wow. Very very small amounts of gold, silver, platinum, palladium. Okay. And the, the company was told by the people that they were dealing with, the the content is way too low. But what they didn't say, it was way too low for them but it wasn't too low for us. So we ended up into a long-term agreement and we started up a company from there. So it was, uh, that is one of the biggest success stories that we have that, uh, um, you know, you take something that was landfill material. Exactly, yeah. And, it's... It. and, and uh, we're among the first that have the, our EPA ID for exporting hazardous waste. 
Okay, yes, I saw that on your website. Yeah. As you know, um, uh, the United States looks at scrap as a, a, a commodity, mm -hmm. while the rest of the world looks at scrap as waste. Mm. And then they go off from waste. Is it green waste? Is it amber waste? Is it <laughs> right. waste? And what can you do with that waste? And uh, so that, um, you know, prompted me to say, well, we should register for, you know, get our EPA ID number. And we were the first in Kentucky to get an EPA. And they kept asking us questions about our facility. I said, none. And how yes. long do you store yes. material on your facility? We don't. And how, you know. <laughs> So I finally went to Frankfurt, Kentucky and sat down with the people and, and we worked out the things that they, they developed a category as a, uh, um, for uh, brokers. And then you, with the EPA, the federal EPA, you're filling out a lot of forms and a lot of documents. So, yeah. so um, but it was well worth it. And then uh, we started trading uh, spent catalyst from uh, um, oil refineries and chemical companies and things like that. Okay. And you talk to most of your scrap dealers and you say about uh, uh, Catalyst and they're thinking catalytic converter. Sure, it's the first thing that comes to mind. They're not right. thinking of a spent catalyst that contains nickel, nickel cobalt, nickel cobalt moly, vanadium, zinc, copper. Mm -hmm. So those are the, the, the types of catalyst. And then uh, a catalyst could be a self-heating solid, which means you have to put it into a special container. So there's there's all different types of things that that go around, you know, from that. Okay, um, we've got somebody so, joining us on the podcast. It sounds like yeah, you know, people apply, but uh, a very nice woman came over and uh, and applied. Then she said her name was uh, Xiaohui Kai, and uh, uh, Xiaohui. Um, uh, became a, a very, very important part of our business because she was able to, to write letters and to speak with people. And uh, um, we had the had fax machines. Uh, we didn't have the internet at that point sure, where you yeah. could communicate with someone. So communicating was was always like a day later when you would and talk. Google Translate was nowhere near being invented yet. It should be yes, pointed yes. out. And, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, um, uh, Xiaohui really, uh, and, and, you know, she, she, I don't think she realized what an integral part of, of our evolution was. And, um, then Xiaohui graduated, she moved to New York and, and next thing you know, she's, uh, you fully in the scrap business. And then she meets some fella in the, uh, in the, um, the magazine business. And next thing you know, they get yeah, married. That's it. She did marry a recycling journalist, uh. Right now, uh, this one you're speaking to, and uh, she's currently still, as you say, very much in the scrap business. She's working with uh, with N4 Alter Trading, based in St. Louis. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a terrific story. Just a, an ad in the college newspaper, and that helped yeah. helped you with your with your business uh, in China. Right. What 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 grades were you selling then to the Chinese market? Was that on motors? Is one of them? I think majority of the material was electric motors. Okay. Um, you know, things like that, you know, the small motors. Uh, we didn't get into the shredded material at that point, um, uh, but it was mostly, uh, we, we bought insulated wire. Okay. Because insulated wire we put on the bottom of the ship mm. and then they dropped the motors in. So it was oh like a cushion. So the motors didn't go through the bottom of the ship or damage so the ship. So this was still the vessel shipping. This is pre-container. Right, this is pre-container. 
Hmm. So that was the, the majority of the stuff that we were shipping to China. Uh, okay. They wanted, they desperately needed copper. They desperately needed steel. And uh, so the electric motor became very, very important. Um, about that same time that we, um, I think it was in the mid 1990s, uh, late 1990s, um, I met a fella in Pittsburgh uh, named Steve Gilbert. Okay, right. Gilbert was working for a company and he wasn't quite happy. And um, uh, so the idea was um, he would work for me. He would still live in Pittsburgh and um, uh, he would handle Ferris. I would handle non-Ferris. It was a great marriage. The, the problem was that uh, because of his former employer, he didn't, you know, people didn't want to deal with him. And uh, uh, so somehow I said, well, I'm getting started with this, these things called electric motors. And most of these electric motors were in the Ferris yards. And so it turned out that we were buying them for very little amount of money. I think it was three cents a pound. Okay. The old units were bought for a penny and a half a pound. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, and then he organized uh, rail shipments. And I mean, we were loading at the port in uh, North Carolina, in Wilmington, North Carolina. I see. It was a very good central part on the East Coast. The loading rates were inexpensive. Storage was inexpensive. So it was a wonderful place for us to, to, to hold stuff. So he was going, um, calling on all these, these scrap people. And uh, we, were, we were doing quite well, you know, buying 20,000 tons of scrap to China. And then shortly thereafter, next thing you know, there's college students, there's waiters, there's people who had friends <laughs> in China yeah. that were also um, uh, electric motors. And uh, there was the, because um, uh, I used to travel to China to visit these yards. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the most amazing place it was his guy. His name was uh, um, uh, Jojo. It was J O E Z H O U. Okay. From Guangzhou. So it was Jojo from Guangzhou. <laughs> All right. And it had a massive facility. And then I realized that all of the people that were working there are, are independent contractors. Mm -hmm. They would get motors. And, and go off into their little tiny groups and they, with hammers and chisels and whatnot, they'd separate. And then they'd sell the material back to Joe, you know, um, copper and, um, and steel. Okay. And take off um, uh, like the silicon steel and they would reuse that to make new motors. And uh -huh. they would, I see. extremely inventive with how they were processing materials. And, uh, they were stripping electric wires. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And what struck me the most uh, about that was outside the gate, there was a ice cream truck. And these people had enough discretionary income to buy ice cream. Uh-huh. So that's a... Hmm. You and I think is very, very low wages. They had discretionary income. So I thought that, that this whole industry, these people, this group, this country is really on on the right track mm -hmm. because many people literally from the uh um uh you know the hinterland into right. this and they uh and they were making money and they were saving money and bringing it home and uh every friday evening it was like a mass migration at the train station 
Right, correct. Yeah, the migrant worker pattern. Yeah. They, uh, they had, um, I guess, two different classes. They had hard seat and soft seat. <laughs> okay. Not hard seats, you know, yeah. they rode, I don't know, 10, 12 hours home. And uh, that it, it was an incredible uh, society. So, uh, so you, you saw that sector change quite a bit, though. Sales to China became not uh, the occasional, as you said, it seems like you woke up one day and there were another 30, 40 people trying to buy the same scrap you probably were, were trying to buy. <laughs> so, so considering where the Chinese market ultimately went, it certainly changed a lot. And by, by 2013 and then 2018, a bunch of restrictions were introduced and, and China's ability to absorb non-ferrous scrap metal has, has, has shrunk quite a bit. Um, you know, that being the case, I mean, what, where do you see the export markets for non-ferrous scrap going? Is the non-ferrous industry going to reshore? There's certainly talk about that. Or do you think there's still worlds to conquer, places for non-ferrous scrap to be, to be shipped overseas? Well, I, uh, I, I think when the uh, green fence uh, was erected, um, the same Chinese buyers, they said, this is a great thing. But instead of going to China, let's go to Vietnam. Let's go to... Uh, other countries. Uh, you saw an opening for India. So all of a sudden now markets started shifting. So these buyers who had relationships in North America, you know, didn't just say, well, we'll come back when the fence is a little bit lower. They repositioned themselves. They uh, redesigned themselves and say, let's still buy this scrap. And let's push it somewhere else. Um, and uh, Vietnam was a very uh, good place, you know, to put the, the scrap. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we still saw the old reliables, Taiwan, we saw uh, Japan, um, still active in the industry. Um, we're seeing people, uh, out of Singapore. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, uh, just this morning, I sent a letter to a, uh, a buyer in Singapore. Mm, okay. Um, the, the traditional markets in Germany, um, have changed uh, dramatically, you know, where you had two, um, major buyers, uh, of copper scrap. All of a sudden, they merged, uh, right. and this was uh, a long time, long time in, in coming. They went through all types of regulations, <laughs> and they're still feeling themselves uh, as far as what path is right because you have a a, a, a very good buyer in the United, you know, um, buying from the United States from Metallo, and then you have a great infrastructure from Arubis of multiple buyers here. So right. how they mesh that's up to them. I don't think anyone can tell. And I'm not sure they may know at this point because you have uh, the scrap relation, the scrap industry, as you know, is built on relationships. You know, sure. uh, my relationship with you brought us here today and my relationship, you know, um, with others, you know, keep me in business. Um, sure. I like to say that, uh, um, that we, we have been very good at pivoting that okay. uh, when one market closes or one opportunity closes, we like to pivot into a different direction, you know, following the same order. Um, I've always liked to specialize in difficult to recycle materials as the electric motors, very difficult to recycle at mm -hmm. that point in the mid 1990s. Um, today, the other very difficult, which is a hugely emerging market is um, electric batteries. Okay. And that's right. a whole right. nother animal. Mm. When someone says, um, do you recycle uh, lithium ion batteries? That's like saying, do you recycle uh, brass? Well, how many different alloys of brass are there? There's, mm. there's not as many lithium ion batteries, but the manufacturers of the batteries 
keep changing the formula. They want to drive down the uh, percentage of um, cobalt and nickel. I just read an article uh, about General Motors. You know, GM uh, wants to be a very large player in this mm -hmm. market, and they feel that they're going to be in uh, the, the company is going to be entirely electric vehicle. You know, within a certain period of time, and they develop their own battery, um, and th their battery is um, going to be some combination of lower nickel and lower cobalt. I see. So. It's up to the scrap dealers to figure out that and to stay ahead of the curve. Right. Because if I were buying scrap from you, for example, I'm buying um, uh, red brass scrap from you. All of a sudden, you change the formula. You're not adding any lead in there by regulations. Mm -hmm. And you may be increasing or decreasing the tin, and you may be adding something called bismuth, which is poison to everybody. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, these things change, and how do, do you get around it? So the scrap dealer has to be very aware of these certain types of changes. Um, so we're recycling the um, lithium ion battery, the nickel metal hydride battery, even the nickel cadmium battery, which is slowly phasing out. We have specialty markets for those. Okay. Um, and you know, keeping in line with uh, difficult to recycle materials, we were contacted, oh, maybe two years ago by um, uh, a fellow from uh, Venezuela. Now I did business in Venezuela many years ago uh, mm. with their spent catalyst, but because this is beyond the green fence, this is almost like an iron fence yes. and the fence was put up by the United States, mm. but they have rules and regulations that um, you can do business in Venezuela as long as it's not a government owned entity. Uh -huh. And scrap is moving from Venezuela to Turkey by vessel, mm -hmm. and it's moving into uh, the smaller markets in India, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan by container. I see. So the, all of a sudden you have something now different. I, uh, ideally, it would be great for that scrap to come into the United States, but the markets just aren't there yet. You know, um, when you mentioned Venezuela, it's extremely difficult to do this. Sure. Sure. Just received our export uh, permit. Uh -huh. So that is, it's just, it adds another challenge. Okay. Yeah. And I guess maybe one of, the, one of those wider points is that long before China started buying in volume and even after it has slowed down its volume, global trading of scrap it preceded that and it'll, it'll still be around afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, one of the questions I always like to ask scrap veterans, and I hope you don't, I think at this point you acknowledge you're a veteran. Uh, <laughs> What are some ways of doing business in the scrap industry that you would identify as you know, having stayed consistent throughout the decades on the trading side or the processing side? And then what maybe are some changes you think about that would surprise someone from a previous generation? Oh, the, the, the cell phone, access <laughs> to information. Okay. I mean, you, you uh, by having your magazine, you market information. You're very good at marketing information. Well, if you look at yourself, and say, how were, how were we marketing this information? Well, of course, the computer and the cell phone. The cell phone um, is, is a great, I could see LME, I could see Comex, I could see movements of, of scrap um, computer software. We have where uh, not only can we book a container, we could see where that container is. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have all kinds of different tracking uh, information uh, available you know, to the traders. And uh, because the consumers, they want to know, when's my container getting here? Have there been any delays? 
the very first time I shipped to, uh, to Vietnam, it took forever um, to go to Haiphong. And then the vessel went, I think, up to Korea. And then the vessel went into dry dock. And then it went, you know, I, I think um, to Taiwan. And okay. it, was, it, was, it was crazy. And now you have, you know, better shipping lanes. But you could track those shipping lanes by use of your cell phone, by use mm -hmm. of your computer, laptop, um, uh, you know, all of these things available to you. Um, GPS will tell you sure. where things are. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's hard to generalize and say the computer mm. because it's a whole bunch of different things that are going to be reporting. The okay. um, uh, uh, Paul Angel and I have been talking about the, uh, the scrapyard of the future where you may not have men in the scrapyard. Um, mm. And uh, he has cameras that look at the, the shredders. Okay. So you could theoretically have someone in an office, let's say in Dallas, operating shredders in Kansas or Arkansas. Uh -huh. Everything okay. is joystick and the camera could tell you the feed and everything else. And you could literally operate a loader. You could operate the dozers. You could operate sorting you know, uh, mechanisms. So all of this it ties back into hardware and software, which we didn't have. Right. Um, when I first started at Colonial Metals, we mm -hmm. had one of those uh, ticker machines. Okay. And uh, you, <laughs> you could hear it going in the other room. You knew news was coming across. Something's every coming, 15, yeah. <laughs> every 15 minutes, you'd have a report on the copper. I and see. And we would run to the machine and it would be in duplicate. So we would tear it off. And uh, I think Martin Sanger at the time got the first copy. And then it got distributed to everyone else as far as what copper is doing. And uh, you had limit up or limit down, you know, three cents. And the magic number was a dollar. I'm going to sell my copper at a dollar. When it gets copper gets to a dollar, I'm going to sell my copper. So you, you had much different things. Uh, people communicated by telephone. Right, um, much more, I'm sure, yes. Yeah, I enjoyed driving through Ohio because they had uh, pay telephones, which some <laughs> of your listeners may not know what those are. And it had an extremely long cord between the, 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 the booth and the, the receiver. So I could sit in my car and roll up the window and, you know, conduct business by a telephone. Oh, if there are any Ohio Bell retirees listening to us, they, they can be glad to know they did that right. They had a nice long cord. Yeah, under, under I, love traveling in, I <laughs> love traveling in Ohio. <laughs> but uh, gone are the uh, those phones. You, you don't. You may not even find a pay telephone. Sure. And I think the next thing that you'll see go is the the eight hundred numbers. Mm -hmm. You need mm -hmm. to have an eight hundred number when most of your your cell phone packages are are one you know one set. You pay for uh -huh. a fee. It doesn't matter how many calls you make. Mm -hmm. So eight hundred. Mm -hmm. Who needs an eight hundred number? Um, and uh, you know, we moved away from landlines. You know, we're right. um, voice Correct. over internet. Mm -hmm. um, you and I are talking, you know, by uh, internet and having Indeed. a perfect conversation. I mean, right. who would think something like this would happen in a very short period of time? Sure. Um, and, no, you, uh, it, it's, you enter the industry with people who, you know, unfortunately are no longer with us. And some of those folks, I, I'm sure you're right, would be absolutely amazed that a, a device the size of about a three by five card, you can track your shipment it has your rolodex in there it's uh, you can you know you can see the pricing from around the world all in this little three by five card <laughs> essentially well, powered by batteries the, yeah yeah powered by batteries. the other thing that made a major change is uh the xrf the handheld analytical ah, okay 
because you could hit that and boom. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my son Drew, uh, when he was, um, he must have been high school or college, and he was working for Millens up in Kingston, New York. Okay. And they had a massive pile of what they called stainless steel, and he was mm-hmm. pulling out all kinds of alloys in there just right. by using uh, an XRF uh, gun. Uh-huh. And uh, when I learned to sort, um, I mean, you know, you pick <laughs> up a piece of, of metal and you bang it, you know, with a big file or you drill okay. into it, look inside the drillings. And, and if, you, if, you're, if you weren't sure, you know, the way you double check is ask a buddy, what okay. do you think? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, uh, I was over at Arubis and uh, they were mm-hmm. going through the inspectors, were going through their big piles of number two copper. And they asked me to join them. And they said, what do you think? What do you think? And then they all write down numbers and then they compare them and they take pictures and they have a man in the booth, you know, kind of, he would add his mix in, they'd average them together. And that was your chemistry. Yeah, that's great. So, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what about something, a constant, something that has not changed dramatically in 40 years or so? I, I think it's uh, I, I, going back to relationships. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who do you know? Who do you know? Um, I was uh, I'm exchanging uh, emails with a guy in Israel that okay. uh, I met uh, this fellow and his father, uh, uh, my son. And I met this fellow at an Israel convention, and um, you know, the, the father's originally from Chicago, uh, moved to Arizona, and then took his family to Israel, and they have a, a, a thriving business uh, doing basically e-waste oh, okay. so i'm looking to buy batteries from him uh-huh. um and uh you know the same um in uh, in the middle east um mm-hmm. uh you have uh the sharif family um mm-hmm. that uh have markets everywhere so right. um you know through my relationships with isri you know um, salam sharif and i became friendly and uh-huh. you know, where i could pick up the phone or he can call me so again, it boils down to who do you know? What do you know? Um, the uh, I always tell people that you know I, I'm not that smart, and my memory and you know early on was has been failing me. But the computer, the customer relationship management programs, keep track of conversations, keep track of of, uh, of times and dates and schedules. And when I last spoke to someone, if someone quoted me something, or if some if I quoted someone something, I have that date. Huh. And um, I, I recently bought um, some uh, um, nickel bearing grindings uh, from a dealer in Montreal and shipped it over to uh, Europe. And uh, so I look back, I said, oh, my gosh, the last time we did this is with 2012. Uh-huh. Okay. So, and I know um... the price. I know the market. I, can, <laughs> I keep track of all that information. I would never remember that. Well, that's where the old meets the new. It's a uh, new technology, but yet performing a very important career-long function, maintaining the, maintaining the relationship. That's well, great. When, uh, when I first started my business in 1984 um, at an Israeli convention, again, or was it ISIS then? I bought a computer. I bought a Zenith computer. Oh, boy. Uh, two floppies, no hard drive, okay. no hard drive. And, uh, and I, I bought a, uh, uh, the, 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 the monitor, which is a huge monitor. Um, it was uh, RBG. Ray tube. Yeah. Yeah, cathode ray tube. And people said, why would you want color? The choices were amber or green. Uh, again, people have <laughs> today have five, two choices between your color screens, amber or green. That's why I do recall those monitors. Yep. Uh, geez. Well, well I want to, well, I want to, oh, I'm sorry. 
No, I'm going to th think of, of, of what, uh, you know, again, going back to how we're communicating, you know, on mm -hmm. laptops, on screens and stuff like this, and how far we've advanced from those large cathode ray tubes and these big, huge desktops yes. that really had no memory at all, mm -hmm. um, how we are, where we are today. Right. Yeah, it's the changes are, are, are pretty awe-inspiring, really. I kind of want to conclude with the future because you've mentioned your son Drew a couple of times now, and I, I so now now we all know, or all of us listening, you do have a son who you're who you were sort of raising in the industry. So for you, this isn't just a theoretical question. This question, this is uh, one you may want to have already pondered a little bit. But what are one or two pieces of advice or guidance you would give to a young person just entering the scrap industry or still fairly early on in their career? What are those one or two things he or she really needs to know? Um, I, I think like anything else, uh, you have to have passion. You have to, no matter what you do, you have to have passion and excitement. And, um, Drew uh, joined me when he was six years old and we went to go, we were loading vessels in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. All right. All these, these big, huge ships and his big equipment, lifting all kinds of stuff and putting it into the hold. And I think at an early age, he was fascinated, you know, uh, most kids play with little tiny toy trucks and little things like that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you see, you actually see these big, big pieces of equipment, big grapples, big magnets, moving mm -hmm. different things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think at an early age, uh, you know, uh, Drew kind of fell in love with the business, you know, okay. from, uh, you know, later on in life when he was, you know, sorting scrap. And uh, that used to be the norm that the, the families would send their children to another scrapyard. Maybe the East Coast would send the kids to the West Coast and vice okay. versa. So there wouldn't be competition. <laughs> but uh, they, they wanted uh, them to ex be exposed to different methods and procedures and how mm -hmm. did they do something and how did they do something different and to bring those back, you know, um, through the, uh, the different conferences that uh, Recycling Today has, you're learning different things um and uh as i said uh, my father told me i would never get hired by colonial because there's secrets well the secrets today really you know i i think there's a vast amount of knowledge and uh in front of my desk i keep the periodic table because okay. i'm in the chemistry business sure you know sure and um and when it comes to the computers and the cell phone and i just can't get something running you know my go-to person is my son <laughs> how do i do this how do i do that and after the eyes are rolled he figures it out and helps me out um and uh his responsibilities uh is, is uh contracts and logistics okay. and uh, we figured very early on you know we're getting away <clears throat> from the handshake you know, we still basically have it, but right. we follow up with, with firm contracts. Uh -huh. And when uh, we were faxing contracts to people, um, I wanted to keep the contracts very short to one page. I see. And now you, you get into contracts that are like legalese. Oh, really? You know, we have contracts from Europe that are five pages long. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and uh, it's like signing uh, when, when you do uh, download an app on your cell phone and it goes through just 20 pages of legalese, you know, of course, yep, except. Yes. <laughs> so you, you have to be very, very careful. And uh, Drew brings that to, to our organization. Oh, okay. Because I'm doing what I can to, to book business. You know, my mm -hmm. talents are, are um, uh, 
you know, knowing, you know, knowing who to go to and where, where to go to. And again, based on our, uh, our database, you know, if someone comes to me with a certain material, you know, I could put it into the database and come up with different cobalt uh, consumers and cobalt traders. Okay. Um, and uh, there's times where uh, a, a nickel uh, um, uh, smelter or a stainless mill, they may not be the best market. There's, there's better places that you could put materials that mm-hmm. would eventually go to that market. I see. So it, again, it's kind of knowing, and I don't know at all, um, but, and I feel that I learn something new every day. Uh, but, um, you know, that's, uh, um, I think this business is growing. I think, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been seeing women coming into our business at a right. record pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I never, you know, Madeline Smiley uh, with Amax Copper was like among the first. Okay. You know? And she she did the right thing. She married uh, Monty Levy at USARCO in Canada, and <laughs> so you know there was a it was a path to finding true love in, in her case. Um, but you do find a lot of Ferris buyers. David Joseph's hiring a lot of you know women uh, Omnisource. Mm-hmm. Um, you see uh, things still passing down from generation to generation. I was on the phone with a, uh, an ingot maker in Chicago. And um, when the, uh, the, the son proposed to the, uh, the owner's daughter, and then she said, yes, the, owner's da- the owner then proposed to the, to the future son-in-law. <laughs> you know, I'd like you to come into the business. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so these things still happen. Right. Um, but uh, again, for someone uh, you know new in the business, it you could do anything. I mean, the, the scrap business, you have local markets, you have uh, regional, you have international markets. If uh, if you're good at languages, that gives you an added step. If you mm-hmm. like negotiating, if you like the you know the background of helping and and uh, you know doing the logistics. So I think I think the scrap business gives you everything you want in in a, in a wonderful industry. And you create commerce, you know, when, when you do something here, when I say, thank you very much, we'll make arrangements, we'll book that container, we'll book that load, whatever, you're creating commerce, you're putting people to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's the guy on the forklift truck or the guy driving the truck or the guy in the plant raking out the furnace, you're putting people to work and creating commerce. So I, I think that gives you an extra added benefit of, of, uh, of self-satisfaction. All right. Well, those are encouraging words to end on. Uh, obviously, you, you do think the, the industry has a great future. You wouldn't encourage your son, I think, to, to join you in it if you did not. Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure. It's always good to catch up with you, and it's, it's nice to do it. It's a little more of a formal format, maybe, but no, we try not to make this too formal. I think it's been plenty informal. Good. Um, Thank you very much. I appreciate you contacting me. Well, Michael, it's been our pleasure. We welcome you. We thank you for being a guest on The Scrap Show. And I hope our paths cross when events start being live and in person again. I'll look forward to seeing you soon. I'm sure we will. All right, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.